Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. nature headline today and then we're going to have a farm report here at the open of mornings with carmen second hour uh nature at its craziest trillions of cicadas are about to emerge okay in the area of like gross and disgusting this is this falls into that category so um yeah it, it it's going it's just about to get crazy out there. Apparently, cicadas live for 17 years. Well, I don't know. Live is might be the wrong word there. Um, for 17 years, cicadas are underground, underground, trillions of them. And within days or maybe a couple of weeks, they are going to emerge. These broods of cicadas are going to emerge. Uh, there will be like 15 states from Indiana to Georgia to New York where this is going to happen. Um, And uh, massive numbers are expected where I live in Tennessee. So I'm just letting you know right now, I intend to be fairly grossed out during this emergence of the cicadas. And I just thought I should tell you in advance that this is about to happen. Then I'm sure it's a wonderful, I'm sure there is a wonderful conversation to have about God's, you know, genius in creation and something about 17 years of hibernation. Um, But really, just the fact that there's going to be trillions of them, um, like millions of them, maybe even hundreds of millions of them for every one of us. Like, I don't need my 170 million of my own cicadas. I just don't. I just, I'm happy for someone else to have them. (sighs) So there you go. Um, In other news, this I found particularly intriguing, and I'm teeing this up before Peter Kapsner comes on because um, I feel like this is at the intersection of everything he loves. A Belgian farmer has moved to the French border. That's right. A farmer in Belgium uh, Belgium, um, was uh, tilling his field, and this stone kept getting in in the way of his tractor's path. And so he thought, you know what? I'm going to move it. Well, when he moved that stone, he moved the French border. So it's caused a bit of an international uproar. Um, uh, well, you know, an uproar of sorts. He made Belgium bigger and he made France smaller. And although some people thought that was a good idea, um, apparently not everyone. So there you go. That's my tease for my conversation with Dr. Peter Kapsner. That's up next here on Mornings with Carter. of you who are sending me the stories about cicadas being on their way, being a threat to my young fruit trees. Those of you who are concerned, uh, who, who are asking for 
verses about cicadas in the Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. You're all excited. Um, Peter Capster is here. Hey, welcome. Welcome back, man. Thanks, Carmen. Those are two of my favorite headlines of the week, for sure. I know the cicada story. I, if they're coming, they're not coming to Minnesota, from what I understand. So I want to do this <laughs> no, segment with you, you next week from Tennessee. In the, yeah, I don't think you're in the circle of love. No, the, I, don't, I, I would love to stand in a field with trillions of, uh, of cicadas. Mm. I just, I mean, as long as they don't mm. eat people, and I don't know if they do, but I would love to stand just in the midst of all of that. It'd be phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Usually they provide a background hum. That's what I'm reading today. That's what I'm hearing. Uh, as loud as a lawnmower. Nashville. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Now, no, but they're saying that this year it's not going to be a background hum. It's going to be a roar, I would assume, mm-hmm. when you're talking trillions. Yeah, indeed. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I do sympathize with that Belgian farmer. Uh, I think that is a fabulous story. <laughs> when, when, when Hallie and I went into our backyard and built our chicken coop, uh, we built it pretty close to the property line, and we thought we were safe with the setbacks and everything. And uh, it was it's a pretty permanent structure, not easy to move. And by the time we put the roof on that thing, we looked up, <laughs> and, our, and our properties, are de- the, you can see the line because of the power lines above you. And and we looked uh, up and thought, oh no, the pitch of the back part of this roof is clearly over on our neighbor. We we actually annexed part of our neighbor's property. <laughs> it's, good, it's a good thing we're good friends, but uh, I don't know what to do because we we definitely took. You just got to uh, give a them an egg it. every once in a while. I think that's exactly right. Indeed. Yeah, so due. I I love the Belgian farmer. I love that he just changed the international boundaries by moving to stone. <laughs> that guy is my new hero. I love it. <laughs> the stones are actually pretty impressive. Um, that is definitely worth looking at online, and and it, there's probably a conversation about neighbors and borders and boundaries and all kinds of I'm sure stuff. there so, is. I'm sure there is. Um, okay, you and I have read this op-ed in in the LA Times why America's record godlessness is good for the nation. Um, uh, Phil Zuckerman is a notable secularist. I mean, he's actually like a professor of secularism, like that's his job. Right. And so no great surprise that he is celebrating the secularization of U.S. society. Uh, but what did you, you know, what did you glean or take away from this uh, conversation? Yeah, I think for me, and granted, I get it. It's a, it's a, a story in a newspaper, so it's not going to be able to cover a ton uh, of credible ground. But I think for me, it, it was stunning in its lack of evidence in terms of the support for the claim. And the support or the claim that he was making is that secularization or the increasing decrease of, of religious influence in our society, and particularly Christianity, is a very good thing. He was saying that uh, living in a country in which we have had Christian faith be pretty pervasive has led to all sorts of problems in in our country. And and just quickly on that, where where I sympathize with some of his take on this is that there's been a pretty abysmal track record over the last couple of decades in terms of moral failings and and the church may be fancying itself more as a business enterprise than as the people of God following Jesus by the Spirit, just communities of faith. So, so I think there's a, a significant conversation to be had about the reformation of how we understand our life together as believers. But to then make the claim that secularization is going to lead us to some sort of utopian version of society because we're going to emphasize things like affordable health care or reproductive rights and sex education, uh, affordable housing, all of these kinds of things. He then, his evidence for that, and this is where it sort of drove me nuts, his evidence is he said, look at how happy people are in countries where secularization has taken over. Some, a place like Japan, for example, failing, of course, to mention, as journalists are wont to do, as they kind of bend the evidence to their own narrative, failing to mention that Japan has had a suicide crisis forever and ever and ever. He talked about uh, the Scandinavian countries, and Hallie and I have spent time in Reykjavik, and uh, there is, it's a, Iceland is beautiful uh, a place to stand. I, I remember standing on an, a little island there and feeling like it was almost like Genesis 1. The waters are just teeming with life. There is this 
unadulterated beauty. It was an amazing place to be. But it also had this underbelly uh, of a, a pretty, uh, I don't know, spiritually depressed, repressed kind of place to be. It was it was not beautiful in that way. And of course, you know, we've lived for a, the better part of 10 years on and off in the United Kingdom and in Scotland in particular. And the UK was one of his examples of where people are healthy and happy and it's a great place to be. The UK is almost entirely secularized. And we have so many dear friends there and we've experienced all of the the utopian supposedly systems that are in place. And uh, and the drug culture of Scotland is one of the saddest things that you could experience. The, the hopelessness that often pervades the culture is uh, incredibly sad. And, and Carmen, the only ple- people that we know there that are genuinely happy, that, are, that, that have a gener- genuine sense of peace and joy in their lives are people who are believers in the midst of the secularization. And they're not trying to build gigantic churches. There's not power plays going on in the churches a lot of times. There's not the moral failures. They're just small communities of people living out life together by the power of the Spirit, having given their lives to Jesus. Those are the people that actually, that we know, they, they have an anchoring in life. So to the claims that he makes, just there's no evidence behind him. He just wanted to say a bunch of stuff. And, and these societies are not like the happiest, flourishing kinds of societies. So I thought, yeah, I completely concur. Um, I, I also, um, I was just also noting that your the selective use of, um, of survey information, like right. the, I, I just think that relying upon um, any kind of 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 surveys over time that it can be helpful, but it's also biased in terms of what we select. Uh, in terms of what we're sharing. So I wanted to highlight this conversation, first of all, because I think it's going to be a surprise to some listeners that there are entire now university departments dedicated to secularism and that this guy is a notable professor of such uh, in, in one of the Claremont schools on the East Coast. He's the associate dean of the Fitzer College, which is uh, one of the Claremont universities in Southern California. Um, And he's the author of a book, Society Without God, What the Least Religious Nations Can Tell Us About Contentment. Um, The the language of happiness and contentment um, was curious to me throughout this as well, the concept of well-being. Um, And I don't I don't know about you, but I mean, we've had a notable rise in uh, in drug abuse yes. in 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 opioid uh overdoses in suicide in America at the same time we've had a rise in secularism so i didn't even understand based on america's own experience of secularization how what he is talking about is you know like true capital t yeah you're 100% right on that i think there's a couple more comments we could make about that is is first of all sociology would be the discipline or the academic discipline that tends to drive these kinds of conversations and my graduate work was in the field of sociology through the lens of, of Christianity. And Carmen, it, it, it truly is one of the flimsiest disciplines in terms of making assertions about what is true. And, and, and you highlighted that. Uh, sociology tends to have sort of cherry pick surveys or uh, somebody might go in and live among a community and then make pretty significant claims that they extrapolate out to everybody based on one small community in which they live. So again, his claims, I think, on a number of levels need to be critiqued. And you just did that by saying the stats actually show the rise of suicide, the rise of depression, the rise of anxiety, the rise of turmoil, all the things that I 
am working with my lovely young students week in and week mm-hmm. out. This is what I have seen over the last 15 years is the tremendous rise in anxiety, turmoil, depression, questions, um, concerns, all of what you just said. So the evidence actually points away from all of that. I do think there is an invitation for the church here in this, though, to sort of reconstitute how it does its life together and to be really be thinking about the idea that successful churches may not just be those churches that are spinning off these multiple satellite campuses and growing and, and uh, that, that the metrics for success really is um, what it means to increasingly live life where the power of sin and death has been broken in your life and you're living by a new way of life from the inside out to begin to remedy the hypocrisy, to have a good news that really people can be drawn into that gives them hope in the midst of this supposed fruit of secularization that really often is depression and turmoil. The church really has a beautiful opportunity. And and last part about that, again, living in the UK, the church, there was a a university ministry in one church in downtown Edinburgh that was drawing well over a hundred university students into its midst because they had finally found a place in the midst of being taught secularized kinds of ideas at the university. They had found a place of hope and, and, uh, and joy and community together. In, in the States, it's hard to find a young person ministry anywhere right now. We really have an opportunity to reach out to the young people in this. <coughs> okay, so let's take a break. We'll be right back, and I'm going to cough. <laughs> All the world starts changing when the church starts Well, I have uh, I have regathered my composure. Peter was concerned that I had inhaled a cicada or something. No, no. I just got all choked up. I have a text from a friend saying, just let your chickens out. They will eat your cicadas. And Peter Peter has made a gracious offer. I have. I will absolutely send you our seven chickens for as long as you need them. They, you know, they came in the post. That always boggles my mind. That little chicks come in the mail. I don't know how they survive that journey, but I can post them back up. They're used to it. And, and I'll send no, them down to you, you for sure. You can't. You I mean, they're cannot, a little bigger. You cannot send a chicken. You cannot send a chicken in the mail full size. The little, the little one day old ones you can send, but you can't send a full size chicken. You have to like burrito them and and put them on a truck. It's like that's a whole different deal. I would drive Um, them down. Okay. uh, Yeah. So maybe that's going to happen. Let's talk about this other article that you and I both read. And I know we have a limited time uh, to do this, but um, I read in the New York Times this piece. My best friends. To, from best friends to platonic spouses. Mm-hmm. Some people are taking their friendships to the next level by saying, I do, to marriages without sex. Well, it's not actually marriages without sex. It's just marriages without sex with each other. Like, this is like a bizarre new development in our culture. Yeah, it's hard to know how to process this, isn't it, in terms of um, what's happening. It, it really, for some people, it's because of the rise of different ways in which you can identify yourself according to a given sexual attraction that you may or may not have. And so things like asexuality seem to be leading to the idea of plutonic friendships. And then you want to get married and and celebrate this, but you're still dating other people outside of that potentially. And the whole thing does get pretty wonky pretty quickly. I think what stuck out to me from the article, however, is that, again, we just talked in the last segment about the, the quantitative rise in anxiety and depression and suicide rates among young people. And that has been mirrored, Carmen, and this is more anecdotal, but in talking with students these last 10 years or so, is that they really struggle with intimacy. And, 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 and the sexual union or the one flesh relationship at its core 
is meant to be about intimacy. It's it's a celebration of within the context of vows, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Uh, there's an intimate thing that happens then between the husband and the wife where they can be together without fear. And that intimacy is is not just for the two of them. It's meant to be a picture of the beautiful intimacy of the Trinitarian life together that is marked by a relationship that has no fear. And so I say all of that to say that uh, one of the most common patterns my young people report in their papers over and over again is they live sort of this life of fear. They live isolated and they live a bit alone and they still, but but we're desire, we, we have been designed for intimacy and they desire it at the deepest levels. And sexual intimacy can be really, really scary. And so this rise of sort of asexuality or I don't really want to be in a romantic relationship seems to be mostly fear-based because they've been growing up in environments where they've seen maybe their parents get fractured or they, or they have been um, in social media circles kind of been bullied or they have just been not seen in the world. I mean, we, we're kind of all doing our lives on our phones now in so many different ways and we don't see each other. It's hard to celebrate together. And so this is what I would describe as kind of a, a safe form uh, of a masquerading intimacy that's meant to be uh, something far more deeper in in marriage relationship, but I, I really do think that the heart of what's happening here has to do with kind of the meh in which people are living these days, where they've kind of shut down their heart. They don't have a lot of passion, really, almost for anything, including romantic relationships. But they still desire some kind of friendship, and so they're celebrating it in this ways. So would be my best take at what's at at least one of the factors that's playing into this. It's not the totality of the story, of course, but but one of the factors has to do with a desire for intimacy but not the full-blooded version of it. I think that's huge. I think that um, the other thing that I might lift up here is the Genesis 1 understanding of the way God made things and how he made them and why he made them the way that he made them um, leads us to understand what marriage and family are. And this, this article, I think, helps us see just how far from that understanding of reality um, we have come in our culture. These two women wanted to get married because they wanted to be, quote, legally and socially recognized as a family. And so the social part of it is is part of what you're talking about, <clears throat> but the legal part of it is a whole nother conversation. Yes. And then this recognition um, of being a family. All right, you and I have to end it right there because um, coming up next, I have a recorded interview. And so we're going to have to leave it right there, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us today again. Yeah, be on the lookout for those cicadas. I know I will be. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking for your chickens. All right, we'll be right back. All right, I've got refugee headlines in front of me right now from Denmark, Kenya, the EU, Vietnam, Tigray, and yes, the United States of America. Um, it's possible that it's time for us, not only here in the United States, but globally, to, to actually reimagine the global approach to the migration of people. We're talking about millions of people around the world who can no longer go uh, back to the place they once called home. What would it look like to reimagine uh, the refugee uh, approach? Well, Mark Glanville joins me next with Refugee Reimagined. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is Max Lakeva. The words of Jesus are spot on. When you give, it has a boomerang effect. Happiness happens when we give it away. That's such great news. 
You can't control your genetics, the weather, the traffic, or the occupant of the White House, but you can always increase the number of smiles on our planet. You, yes you, you can help people to sleep better, laugh more, hum instead of grumble, walk instead of stumble. You can lighten the load and brighten the day of other human beings. And don't be surprised when you begin to sense a newfound joy yourself. This is the unexpected door to joy. And standing at the entryway to welcome you is Jesus of Nazareth. This is Max Lucado. And this is how happiness happens. I'm brought to the Father. I'm thrilled to introduce our audience today to Mark Glanville. He's here as the co-author of his book, Refuge Reimagined, Biblical Kinship in Global Politics, co-authored with his brother, Luke Glanville. Mark, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much, Carmen. It's great to meet you. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. So we talk uh, here about refugees. We distinguish that from, you know, general uh, issues related to immigration. But you are really broadening, I think, the scope of the conversation to forcibly displaced people. And I'm describing that as people who cannot go home because there's really no home to go to. Is that sort of a fair characterization of the scope of the conversation? Yeah, that's right. In our book, Refuge Reimagined, we do speak about refugees and vulnerable immigrants who are seeking the home, a home. To be sure, in our day, there's 79.5 million forcibly displaced peoples, which is unprecedented in global history. Post-World War II, there were millions and millions of forcibly displaced people. But just in the last 10 years, the number of people globally who are seeking a home has literally doubled. I really appreciate the conversation sort of centering around the globalization of indifference. And I know that that is some some language from Pope Francis in July of 2013. Um, yeah. We have not become more sensitive. Uh, I think we've become more indifferent in the subsequent years. Um, maybe let's start there. Am I actually responsible for all these poor, desperate, wandering people? Um, am I my brother's keeper? Well, I think in the Bible we see a biblical ethic of kinship. And a biblical ethic of kinship is a solidarity that God has with all human beings as the creator. You think of Genesis 9, where God makes a covenant with all living creatures, in fact, including animals, um, but especially human beings. And a covenant, of course, is a commitment of loving solidarity. It's a commitment to, to value and to protect. And when God makes a commitment in Genesis 9, that foreshadows a covenant commitment that God makes explicitly to people who are on the move seeking a home in Deuteronomy 10. In Deuteronomy, in fact, it's a book that one of our chapters uh, deals with in detail. It's deeply concerned with ancient forced displacement issues, which is perhaps surprisingly. The word stranger or refugee occurs 22 times in the biblical book of Deuteronomy, which might surprise some listeners. And the ethic of Deuteronomy and throughout Scripture, in fact, is to enfold the stranger as our kin, enfold the vulnerable immigrant who is seeking a home as our kin. And in Deuteronomy 10, 18 and 19, God says that, that Yahweh or God loves the stranger, and so you are to love the stranger. And that word love is very important, Carmen. Um, as 
Americans, Canadians, Australians, we might think that the word love is something kind of a, a soft feeling in our heart. Well, it may include that, but actually love is a covenantal term. It's actually, in terms of ancient history, a term from ancient Near Eastern treaties, which is a, a metaphor or a formula that the Bible uses to describe God's steadfast solidarity with Israel, with all of humanity in Genesis 9, but here in Deuteronomy 10, 18 and 19, the divine covenant or steadfast commitment to people on the move seeking a home. So it says Yahweh loves the stranger and you are to love the stranger. And this word love is a covenant term, but a covenant includes kinship. These ancient treaties mean a kinship commitment. And so this is one of the texts that we go to. I mean, it's really a biblical theology. It's certainly not a proof texting project to show that the character of God is to always tilt towards people who are vulnerable. The character of God's people is always to embrace and enfold as kin those who are seeking a home. So I want to read um, to our listeners Deuteronomy 10, 18 and 19. Um, you'll want to go back and read the full context of this passage because that's helpful as well. We're we're talking right. here, you know, about the giving of the um, the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments. But reading from Deuteronomy ten eighteen and nineteen, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. Um, Mark, I'll just observe here. Um, Christians are good at acknowledging our uh, our calling to serve those who um, who are orphans and widows. But then there's this, and loves the sojourner. So God is the character uh, referred to here. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and right. he loves the sojourner. And the love language there is not this sort of emotional or romantic love that we tend to think of today. It is this covenantal love, covenant language that grows out mm. of these political, even militaristic treaties. And then it's described, you know, like how that love is enacted, um, giving him food and clothing and and then there's the command part of the passage in verse 19, love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Um, love is doing a lot of work in this passage. Uh, that's your language, not mine. Love is describing who God is and how God operates, and then love is serving here as a command to God's people to go and do likewise. Right. Yeah, that's well explained, Carmen. That's right. It's really a revelation of the character of our God. And this idea of a covenant, which isn't actually a very ancient, what's what we call an ancient Near East and kind of uh, it's really an instrument of international relations that the Bible uses to display the character of God. And what we find when we read the Old Testament carefully is that God's covenants, Yahweh's covenants, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ's covenant commitments tend to challenge our first flinch allegiances. And uh, I think like anyone else, you know, my first flinch is to love my family, and that's clearly good from Scripture, and to love those who are dear to me by just proximity, and that's clearly good from Scripture. But it's fascinating to see who Yahweh makes a covenant commitment with, who the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ makes a covenant commitment with. And of course, there's a covenant with Israel, the Old Testament people of God, and that's a very important covenant. But yet alongside that and infused with that is this covenant with the stranger, the refugee or the, the forcibly displaced person there in Deuteronomy 10, 18 and 19, as you've so beautifully unfolded it. And that comes in the context of a covenant with all of the creation post-flood after 
the flood and the Noah story there in Genesis 9. And this covenant shows us the divine character. It shows us the divine heart, that there is something about our God that does tilt and move in love toward vulnerability and toward, in the case of Deuteronomy 10, displaced people who are seeking the home, a home, a place to live. And of course, it's kind of, if you put it in the context of biblical theology, it's the sort of heart of God that we see in the Exodus event. In the book of Exodus, you might remember that Israel, God's ancient people, well, they were an enslaved na nation. Uh, they were building the, the store cities of Pithom and Ramesses for the Pharaoh of Egypt there in Exodus chapter 1. And God reaches out and rescues, emancipates his enslaved people revealing the divine heart for people who are vulnerable and suffering, and then gives Israel these laws, which includes the book of Deuteronomy, to shape Israel to be a place that's completely different from Egypt's ugly, awful, dehumanizing oppression, but to be a place of love and mutual care that displays God's own love. And so this covenant that God has with refugees, with immigrants who are seeking a home, and calls Israel to have I mean, I just, I, as a Christian, I just love this. I mean, this is the God we serve. This is our God. Amen. And of course, this is what we see in the Gospels. Mark Glanville and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about refuge reimagined biblical kinship in global politics. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right, picking up right where we left off in our conversation about Refuge Reimagined, Biblical Kinship in Global Politics. Mark Glanville is my guest today. Mark, the first half of the book is uh, is really carefully tracing the biblical story of how God's people are called to enfold all people as kin. The second half of the book explores how that ethic might be embodied in nations today, so this is the, I think, portion of the book where you are likely to get the most fervent pushback, particularly as you just described it earlier in, you know, for those who first flinch toward allegiance, you know, closest to home, family, neighbor, countrymen, me, my, mine. And so if my first flinch allegiances are to me, mine, and mine, and God is calling me to a kinship ethic there's lots of national implications or implications for nation states. That's what the entire second half of the book is about. That leads us to a conversation about national identity or sovereignty or citizenship or rights and borders. And could you just wander around a little bit in all of that? Well, we tend to think, I mean, I'm an Australian citizen and soon to, be, soon to become a Canadian citizen as well, as it turns out. And my wife is uh, both is she's what we call dual citizenship. She's American Canadian. We we live here in Vancouver and in and out of the U.S. as a scholar and a teacher. And we're very used, I think, you know, certainly in our lifetime, just to be thinking of borders and nations and crossing borders and a government's right to regulate borders as a very natural thing. You know, none of us would ever um, really stop even to question that in a way. But I think it's important just to realise that sovereignty and the sovereignty of states is a relatively new invention. In fact, the, the sovereignty of nations of, of, and the idea of national communities is only 400, 500 years old since the Treaty of Westphalia in Europe. 
And that's very interesting. But the idea that governments have the right to control who comes in and out. And once again, I mean, I think I grew up just thinking, well, this is normal. You know, of course, you'd show your passport, etc. But even the passport was only sort of invented a little over 100 years ago. And national borders, as we know them today, Carmen, you know, globally, many of them were affixed post-World War II. I was born in the early 70s, so that's not long after I was born. And so we need to realise, I think, that national borders, while they may serve some good, and there may be some good that is even a biblical good, they're a human construction. And insofar as they're under art just, we need to challenge them. And insofar as they serve all people, then we can affirm them. We think of national identity in sort of the same way. You know, we're American, we're Canadian, we're Australian, and we just assume that that's what we are. But so, And then the argument goes, we need to control our borders. We need to uh, have very strong uh, policies concerning our borders in order to maintain our bonds, our affinities, our cultural identity. Well, to be sure, we need to oversee our borders and have uh, good control. But what does that control look like? And what does it mean to oversee our borders? And what does it mean to have a national identity? I mean, sometimes when we think, you know, what is an American? What is a Canadian? We're really making a pretty kind of if I may, sort of white assumptions. In other words, we're speaking from the perspective of majority culture. I mean, if I'm white, and it's pretty natural for me when well, sometimes I think of a society, I can think of it as white. And I think that's a mistake, of course, because even if uh, white is majority culture, we have to realise that our culture has been built upon too often the exclusion of others, the expulsion of others, Think of the Chinese Immigration Act, late 1800s in America, the exploitation of others, and when it comes to First Nation communities, the extermination of others. The, rea the reality is, historically, that racism actually has a, contributes to our national identities. And is it right to preserve this in that way? And in, in pursuing, sort of, in preserving a majority culture or a white culture national identity, are we excluding, once again, you know, the, the new Secretary for Homeland Security recently said in a statement, we are a nation of immigrants, he said of the US. And that's an important thing to realise. We, On the one hand, we might think of our national identity as something that's fixed, but this is a nation of immigrants. And another thing about national identity, when it comes to thinking about borders, common and sovereignty, that's important, I think, is that, you know, we can be very busy getting upset about the US-Mexican border or about refugees or queue jumpers, etc. But while, you know, our communities might be busy excluding outsiders, tightening our borders, in reality, America and Canada, we welcome wealthy outsiders with open arms, often with a fast track to citizenship. And I think that that tells us something about our real identity that we're sort of just sort of neoliberal and, and chasing the bottom line. I mean, the question is, is there a more beautiful identity, you know, to chase, you know? And Luke and I think that actually the Bible opens up an invitation to a very beautiful identity, an identity of true community that values each person, that reflects Yahweh's heart, that tilts towards those who are vulnerable, even as God tilts towards us in grace, in our vulnerability, and that embraces vulnerable outsiders as kin, realizing that we need to be embraced too in our vulnerability. You know, the reality is that this is a beautiful invitation, not a threat, to welcome the outsider. 
I think it's a beautiful invitation too, as we think about our own national identity, not only to think of borders generously, but to think, well, are there ways in which we as nations can actually be perhaps even selfishly complicit in producing the displacement in other countries by our foreign policy, by our trade agreements, by how we use aid, um, by our the foolish wars we can wage or by our arms sales. So I think when we look at national identity, we have to look at it with some sophistication. In what ways are we being self-serving and actually producing the displacement that we're trying to keep out? I hope that's helpful. Yeah, it is. You've, you have uh, surfaced so many issues, and I feel confident. I have a number of listeners responding right now, at least in their hearts, if not on our text line, um, with all kinds of inflammatory whatabouts. And so let me assure you, if you're listening right now, um, we yeah. are going to spend some time um, talking about that in the next segment after we conclude our conversation with Mark Glanville. I just like to maybe make this observation because you use the word invitation um, where others see threat. What if we saw an invitation? I would also argue, what if we saw an opportunity? I I would right. observe, Mark, that part of what's driving the move toward you know global indifference is the fact that most people don't see other people, and certainly not every other person, as an image bearer of the living God. So there is an opportunity for those of us operating out of a Christian or biblical worldview here to say, look, if the world is impersonal, then there's actually nothing wrong with the evolutionary theory of the survival of the fittest, and these 80 million people can die and no one should care. But if, if, in fact, the universe is personal, God is real, the Bible is true— um, mm. then God not only sees and has created these individuals, but out yeah. of love um, has claimed them and commands me as a person representing him in the world today, an ambassador of his kingdom, to live out the principles that I understand from the Bible. And that is radically opposed to the national identity process that we're engaged in today. So I do think there's opportunity mm-hmm. here. Yeah. I just think it's really, really scary to start the conversation. So thank you for um, being mm. the guy that, I don't know, flew the, uh, through the flame out into the, in, into the conversational pit and said, hey, you know, somebody else grab the stick and let's start talking. Mark, you and I are going to have to leave it right there. Um, I've been talking with Mark Glanville, co-author of Refuge Reimagined. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. We'll be right back. Okay, uh, next segment means tomorrow morning, leading off with Matt Hawkins, we are going to pick up on the refugee conversation, particularly the raising of the refugee limit by President uh, Biden. And we're going to we're going to do that with Matt Hawkins. So when I said next segment, uh, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean today. I meant tomorrow morning. Um, Okay, so it is the National Day of Prayer. Don't miss out on events in your area. Certainly don't miss out on the live stream event Tonight, you can find all the information at MyFaithRadio.com. While you're there, consider working on your own faith story, how to how to share the good news of what God has done uh, it, by his transformative power in your life, how to, uh, how to share that with others. So great little resource there on developing your faith story. And then um, one other thing that I wanted to highlight, 
um, today at uh, at myfaithradio.com. And that is this uh, this conversation that we're having about moms. So blessing moms and mentors. You can share about the person who has influenced your life, nominating them to win a special gift from Faith Radio might be a really fun thing to do um, in honor of your mom or grandma or somebody who has functioned in that way in your own life. Maybe um, a person who has functioned as a godmother thinking there about our conversation we had with Lisa Bevere a few weeks ago about her book on that topic. You and I um, function in the lives of others as um, as moms in the spirit of the living Lord um, a lot. So who are my mothers and my brothers? The ones who do the will of my Father in heaven. So who are those people in your life who do the will of the Father? Maybe you want to honor one of those spiritual moms this week in this Mother's Day week. Just some thoughts just some thoughts uh, as we head into this day. Let us do so as the ambassadors of the King and the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. Let's be praying today for this nation that we call home. Let's be praying for a revival of God's spirit in this land, that love might be multiplied and that liberty might be extended to more and more people. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.